Bits and Answers begins right now. What does it mean to be a man or to man up? Why is masculinity viewed as a negative trait today? When and how did the definition of manhood get so distorted? There's a lot of confusion today about gender, family, and sexuality. But what does the Bible teach about manhood and womanhood? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with our host, Pat Zugren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat began an interview with best-selling author Dr. Nancy Piercy, talking about her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Today, we will continue on with part two of this three-part interview. If you've missed any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. There you will find this message and hundreds more podcasts that you may download or listen online. Now, let's get right to part two. We know in human, in human relationships that love can be very healing. Well, if you work through to a level of spiritual experience with God's love, it's the greatest healing power around. And so in my introduction to the book, I say, in a sense, I've been writing this book my whole life because I have spent my whole life working through the psychological healing mm-hmm. where I could write a book that was positive toward men and toward masculinity. Yeah, that's terrific. Now, in your book, you say that men are torn between two competing definitions of masculinity today. What are those two definitions? Yeah, so the reason I put this right at the front of the book is what I told you earlier. When people would say, whose side is she on? I realized I had to address that right at the beginning of the book. And so I I moved this study to the beginning because it's a study done by a sociologist. He's not a Christian. He's well enough known that he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment where he asked young men two questions. The first question is, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, someone says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, men men had no trouble answering that. It Hmm. was easy. Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Uh, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, stand up for the little guy. I like that last one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he said, the the sociologist would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. Right. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say, man up be a real man and the young men would say no 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 that's completely different that's that means be tough be strong be be competitive win at all costs never give up um never show weakness get rich get laid i'm using their language yeah (laughs) um and so this was fascinating because what it means is Men are made in God's image, and they do inherently, innately know what it means to be the good man. Romans 2, right? We Uh all have a sense of God's Uh law written in our hearts. But they often feel cultural pressure to be, quote unquote, the real man, Uh which often includes traits that uh, many of us would consider more toxic. Certainly, if it's decoupled from the moral ideal of the good man, it can slide into traits like entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And and so this gives us a better approach to these issues, I would say, because 
most men don't respond very well to being called toxic, right? Mm -hmm. None of us would. So what this means is that a more effective approach is to see if you can tap into their innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man. You know, support it, affirm it, draw it out, encourage it. Mm -hmm. And that gives us a much more positive approach to these issues. Yeah, it's that second definition is the one that people are reacting against, isn't it? That we need to get these definitions right, isn't it? Yes, exactly. The second definition, um, the, people say, well, the, the good man, don't you mean Christianity? You know, the Christian view of manhood? Huh. Yes, of course. But what it means is even people in cultures, he, he's done this, the sociologist has done this in every country from, you know, Brazil to Sweden to Australia. Uh, so there are many cultures that maybe don't have an overtly Christian teaching. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, what we call general revelation. Yeah. Right? And theologically, special revelation is the Bible. But general revelation is people know intuitively God's truth through their experience in the world. And so this is part of general revelation that many people, well, universally, universally men do have an innate sense of, of the good man. Oh. Um, and of course, it's backed up by what we know in scripture. And then you write the second definition, the real man is the one that's become secularized. And uh, I, I, throughout the whole book, then I kind of use this as a connecting thread. You know, how has modern culture lost the ideal of the good man? How have we given in to the real man to the point where masculinity itself is often considered toxic? Oh. Now, your book does an excellent job in tracing how the definition of masculinity and the role of men changed from colonial to industrial to modern. And this doesn't apply just to uh, America or the West. We're seeing it in Asia now and in other third world countries in Africa as they go through this process as well as they're industrializing, getting more technical. Uh, so walk us through uh, this a little bit of how the definition of masculinity changed through these periods. You're right. Um, to keep the book at a readable length, I focused on America, but the Industrial Revolution, of course, is is going global. And so I, I, I think it's totally applicable to other cultures as well. But so in America during the colonial era, which was largely Christian, um, Men worked side by side with their children and their wives throughout the day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the the ethos or the cultural expectation of manhood was very much oriented to caretaking, responsibility for your family. Uh, even the definition of authority had a very specific meaning. It meant the person responsible for the common good. In other words, as individuals, you know, we all look out for our own good. I look out for my good. You look out for your good. But who's who's responsible for the common good of the marriage or of the family, of the church, civil society, and so on? And that's what authority was for. The favorite word of the time was the person in authority was supposed to be disinterested, meaning he was not supposed to look out for his own interest. His mm. job was to look out for the interest of the whole. Mm -hmm. And by the way, a lot of people, when they read that part, say, well, I'd have a much higher view of authority if people still thought of it that way. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, how did we lose that historically? So the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, 
they were not working with people they loved and had a moral bond with, the families. They were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this is where you see the language start to change. People began to complain. They didn't like it. They began to protest that men were becoming, you know, competitive, aggressive, self-interested, egocentric, you know, look out for the, you know, look out for number one, make it, uh, you know, make it over, climb, climb up the career ladder and so on. And you see already in the, in the 19th century, you see the literature start to say men are losing that caretaking ethos that they had in the colonial era. And so that was when you first started seeing the male character described in negative terms. Now, in, in the toxic war on masculinity, I do go through several more stages mm-hmm. to explain you know, how we got to where we are today. But that was the important turning point. Um, that's, what, that's when you first start seeing it, they didn't use the word toxic yet, but that's you know the idea that masculinity was becoming toxic. You see that in the literature of the day. Yes. Now, um, your book says that uh, the criticism of men began much earlier than most of us think. So, where does this idea of toxic masculinity, you know, uh, how did it begin, and where does it come from? Yeah. So that's essentially what we just talked about. In other words, it's the Industrial Revolution, yeah. but there are other there are other there's some other key times, key periods that are worth looking at. Like one of the most important is the rise of Darwinian evolution. Yes, the Darwinist Darwinian thinkers began to say that well, in the struggle for survival, the men who came out on top would by necessity be rough, rugged, brutal. Um, savage, barbarian, and even predatory. And so this was then said to be the man's true nature. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, uh, the favorite phrase was, under the thin veneer of civilization, right. men are actually brute beasts at heart. And this is, for example, when the Tarzan books became popular. Mm-hmm. When they were written, by the way, the author was intentionally writing from a Darwinian perspective, too. Hmm. His, his son, we, we know that because his son tells us that. He, he writes about it. Um, so Dar, Tarzan is presented as someone who hasn't lost that inner wildness, you know, that inner barbarian strength because he was raised by the apes. And even though he learns European customs and languages, at the end of the book, he turns to Jane and he says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. Mm-hmm. So that was the message of evolution. And, and there were more serious literature, too. There was a genre actually called literary naturalism. And again, these were lit- literary writers who were trying to express in fictional form a Darwinian worldview. The best known is Jack London, who I don't know about you guys, but we all read, he's American, so we all read him in high school. We all know yeah. Jack London. Um, but he was writing about dogs, but it was metaphors for humans. And he was trying to make the point, a philosophical point, that when he was a young man, he actually read Darwinian writings and experienced what one historian calls a conversion experience to radical materialism or naturalism. And that's what he was trying to show in his books, that we're just products of natural selection, genes and environment. We have no real free will. We're we're basically just animals and nothing more. So this seemed to be the message of evolution. And I, I want to say, by the way, it, that sort of social Darwinism has come back in a in a big way in our own in our own day because let me give you just one example. This was a best-selling book. It was called The Moral Animal. And it said, men are by nature 
oppressive, flesh-obsessed pigs. Mm -hmm. Giving them a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving Vikings a book on how not to pillage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So that's the message of evolution. And by the way, the follow-up question would be, and then how do women put up with such brutal men? And he, they answered that as well. Herbert Spencer was the most influential popularizer of Darwinism. And he said, well, women needed to learn the ability to please. And it would also help if they learned to hide their resentment at such poor treatment. So this was the message of evolution that humans are... At, at, at the core, they are beasts, you know, they're uncivilized beasts, they're wild and savage, and that women need to placate and, and, uh, and please them. Instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, they were telling men, no, no, to be authentic, you need to live down to your true animal nature. So that was an incredibly important step in the secularization of the concept of masculinity. Yeah, you know, you you, you made uh, that very important point of how Darwin's theory, you know, it's more than just the theory of origins. And in your uh, previous book, uh, Total Truth, you know, how our view of origins has a tremendous effect on all numerous areas uh, of culture and how we think. And so Darwin's theory really has influenced areas of psychology and psychiatry and sociology and so what you're talking about, you, you know, the things that we're taught about, you know, men are just uh, highly evolved animals. And this is what you can expect has really uh, affected the area of psychology, psychiatry and sociology and affects our definition and the way we look at men. Just what you're talking about here has had a tremendous effect. Yeah. And let me add Darwin himself has expli explicitly said that women are intellectually inferior to men. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, you know, men have accomplished all these great things. Women haven't. Therefore, they're obviously inferior. Um, and his one of his uh, followers, Thomas Huxley, who was actually nicknamed Darwin's bulldog because he promoted Darwinism so fiercely, um, said, you can't even educate women out of their inferiority. He said... Wow. Because it's a product of natural selection, their inferior their inferiority cannot be fixed by what he called educational selection. So apparently there was no hope for them. And, and Darwin did admit, by the way, that women are more sensitive and intuitive. Mm. But then he said, those are traits of the lower species. Ah. So even women's strength was said to be signs of her inferiority. So yeah, evolution bears a huge responsibility for the um the denigration of women oh. and like you said a minute ago the idea that men are just essentially you know the dominant domineering beasts at heart yeah and one of the themes i think in all your books is that uh disconnect that christians have that public and private split or um fact and faith uh, that kind of disconnect that we have here and how does that come into play uh, here when we're talking about manhood and womanhood? Yeah, so after the Industrial Revolution, um, uh, the, the, they grew up, grew up a large public square, public sphere of factories and offices and financial institutions and universities, banks, and, and of course the government. And people began to say that this public sphere should be run by 
scientific principles by which they meant value free. Uh, in other words, don't bring your private values into the public arena, which is what we still hear today. Mm -hmm. Well, where were values going to be cultivated then? People didn't want to just give up values like love and altruism and kindness and goodness and um, religious devotion. Well, so those were all relegated to the private sphere of the church and home. Well, at that time, of course, who was at home? Women were at home. And so for the first time in human history, hmm. women were said to be morally superior to men. People began to say, well, women are in charge of values because women are more sensitive in the moral and spiritual realm. That had never been said before. All hmm. the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that men were morally superior, that the insight into right hmm. and wrong is a rational insight and men were thought to be more rational. Therefore, men were thought to be more virtuous. Hmm. In fact, the word virtuous comes from the Latin word for man. V-I-R, man, like in the word virile. <laughs> so virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. So this was completely new, that in the 19th century, women began to be seen as morally superior. And so what happened is, is a, a huge split then between the public arena which was amoral and secular and supposedly scientific. And men were working in that arena all day. And then the home was supposed to be the realm where you cultivated morality and spirituality. And men were supposed to come home at night and be reformed and refined and renewed by their morally superior wives. So the private public split, which sociologists often talk about, you know, how the, the modern age is characterized by this huge public public sphere which you know was not the case before um you know when, when economic activity was carried on in the home you didn't have a huge split but now the public private sphere also becomes a split between masculine and feminine and, and so this is part of what we're up against today as well is that it's still from what from when i talk to young people they tell me that definitely they feel that the double standard is still there like in a dating relationship, for example, it's the woman's job to hold the line on their sexual involvement or non-involvement. Uh, it's the woman who's supposed to be um, hold. And even after marriage, I was I was on an inter interviewed by a young couple who run a, a podcast, and so I asked them, you know, and they said, "Oh yeah, in in the Christian world that that they experience as young people, you know, like in their twenties, they said." The, the message is that men are much more prone to sin and vice, to pornography and adultery and having affairs, and that it's a wife who has to sort of keep the husband in check. She has to make sure she's meeting all, all her needs because if she, all his needs, did I say that wrong? That she's meeting all his needs because it'll be her fault if he does porn or whatever. That mm -hmm. they, they're, From their young people's perspective, that double standard is still very much in the Christian world. And I, I think it's still causing a lot of tension, therefore, between the sexes. We're still kind of letting men off the hook morally and, and holding women responsible for hmm. men's behavior. Wow. Yeah. You know, on a side note, I use that public-private split uh, all the time. I just spoke at a uh, youth retreat there in the San Bernardino National Forest, about 200 youth. 
And we talked about the Christian worldview and the public-private split. And all the time you see kind of the light bulb go off. And at the Q&A time, not only the youth, but youth staff and the pastors were saying, well, how does Christianity apply to psychology? How does Christianity apply to economics? How does Christianity apply to my view of the environment? You know, they had never made that connection before. So it's a great uh, analysis or tool I use all the time, the public-private split fact faith you know i if you haven't if guys haven't read total truth you guys got to read it you know that's a book you ought to read maybe before you read the other nancy piercy books yeah 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 you're right you're right because that's where i deal with that and and here i just show that here's just one more place where that private public split applies and historically it had a huge impact on the male female relationship so there it is again yeah well let's start moving to the church now you know how has the culture's attack on masculinity you know, affected the church. Yes, it was very easy to find examples, as you can imagine, of people saying that um, conservative churches lead to abuse, um, that any sort of headship theory leads to men who are overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. I'll give you just one quote. This is from the co-founder of the Church Too movement, which started after the Me Too movement. And she said, uh, the conservative Protestant male headship theology mm. feeds the rape culture that we see permeating Christianity today. Huh. So there was there were psychologists and sociologists who said, well, wait a minute, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your evidence? And so they went out and did the studies. And what they found was actually just the opposite. They found that Christian evangelical men who are actually practicing their faith, who go to church regularly, who believe it, who are trying to live it out, test out as the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers of any group in America. Mm. Um, they, the first pushback I get, of course, is that, oh, sure, of course the wives said they were happy, their husband's sitting right next to them. <laughs> but no, no, they interviewed the wives separately. And, and these are drawing on large databases that are secular. These were not, not all of them. I did, I, I have about a dozen different studies, but the largest ones drew on the databases that are secular and, you know, that do, uh, look at thousands and even tens of thousands of, uh, of people. So um, they, they're, they're not, they're not um, biased in their questions. And so what these studies do find that the wives themselves report the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend the most time with their children and both in shared activities like sports and church youth group and in discipline like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce. And then the, the real surprise, they have the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. So it just shatters all the negative stereotypes. It debunks all of the media messages that we hear about Christian men. And when I read it, none of this is out in the public arena yet. I had to go digging in the academic literature, academic journals to find this material. And that was the final reason I decided to write the book actually, as I said, we've got to get this, we have to get this information out there. This is just so interesting and we don't know it. And our, you know, our really good, godly Christian men 
of feeling beaten down like every other man. And they need to know that this, 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 the studies show, and it's not just, you know, a pastor giving a pep talk. This mm -hmm. is rigorous scientific data. This is empirical testing. And so we should be bringing this confidently out into the public arena as evidence-based findings from social science. Once again, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. Our goal is to bring you the love of Christ and to equip you in your faith to always be ready to give a response. If you would like to hold an apologetics conference or series of teachings at your facility, contact Pat by calling him in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may email him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to browse through our listing of topics on our site. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You will also find articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. An additional location to find Pat's messages is on YouTube. Look up Evidence and Answers and hit the subscribe button. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. Donating is simple. Just log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is grateful for one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a place to grow in your faith, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log in at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerberg. <laughs>